Welcome to The Tech Entrepreneur, a podcast for business entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors who want to do more with technology, accelerate their business, and avoid the pitfalls of software development. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. It's the first recording of 2021. We've got Darren Altier and Phil Telfer from ClearSky, and we're looking to take you through a few things today around the pitfalls of insourcing or outsourcing your tech projects pitfalls of insourcing and outsourcing tech i guess this is something we've seen a lot of it's a struggle people who have great business ideas you know a need and understand the value that tech can bring it's not necessarily easy to do you know because it's not your specialist area and we've seen it go wrong quite a few times and we've also seen the same kinds of things go wrong more than once and this is not an exhaustive list, right? But we're going to cover a few things here we think that are quite common. And maybe what we'll talk about here, you know, might help some people avoid some of these common errors and mistakes. So we've got a list of a few things to talk about. So let's crack on. So first on the list is feedback loops. So what does that mean? It sounds like a bit of a bit of jargon, isn't it? But what it really means is, you know, how do you, as someone who has requested and commission some software, how do you check along the way that this is it's working properly and it's going to give you the value and benefit that you want and you need for your business? I mean, we've talked you know, at length, people have talked at length about waterfall and agile projects. It's been covered you know, plenty already. But, but really, that is quite an important distinction because you know, waterfall projects of old would define everything up front. People would then go away and, and create software that exactly matched that requirement. And then we'll deliver it probably months or years later, or in some cases, not at all. Um, some you know, well-known examples of that. And then, you know, the, the, the organization who'd commissioned it would, would check at the end and say, oh, um, well, actually, the world's changed since we last, since we requested this. And now there's, this is, doesn't really match our requirements. Or there's a few things here that we kind of misunderstood or maybe perhaps not communicated properly. And so there's some huge you know, issues with that waterfall approach. And the agile approach is designed to mitigate a lot of those. But it's really important that those feedback loops that happen frequently during uh, an agile development cycle are uh, maintained. So these things will normally be, say, two to three weeks on the cadence of sprints. And... And so this is a really key opportunity for you know, development teams to put in front of clients and stakeholders any work in progress and say, this is what we've been doing. Is this what you're expecting? You know, have a play with it. See whether what you have asked for you know, is actually what you want. And it's such a critical part of that process. And you can take those interim releases and help to kind of re-steer um, effort you can say actually we've changed our minds we don't like that way that that user experience let's kind of you know rein that back in start again maybe you've lost two weeks you might have lost a whole two week sprint normally you'll have lost you know something that changed your mind maybe you roll back a few days effort but it's so much more efficient to do it there and then than it is to do it you know six months down the line yeah and, I, and a few things to kind of watch out for for, for feedback loops as well it can be the type of feedback you're getting. For me, a really good feedback loop is, is not just talking to, for instance, a product owner or the person that kicked off the project. Um, it's getting real users in, involved 
as soon as possible. You know, whether you have kind of friendly customers or users that are part of your user group that are going to go live with the product, if you get them in during development, if you get them in the demos for, for the product really early on, you can get some really, really great feedback that, that changes the product that will be delivered in the end. The last thing you want to do is, is throw so much investment into a, you know, a long project, whether it's a few months or, or a year, and then put it in front of real customers. And then um, lots of kind of questions come out the woodwork that, well, actually, the value for the customer isn't in what, what's been built. It's something that needs a, a bit more development to get it where it needs to be. Yeah, I guess there's obviously there's there's the bias of feedback as well, where you might have stakeholders that have their vision of what the product should be. And I think it's really important to obviously get them involved and get their, get their support in there, but have an agreed vision between uh, between users, stakeholders, and the team about what, what they're trying to achieve in that time. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I think about especially you know, putting a, a piece of software into a user who you know would be coming to it afresh. So if you talk about something that's, say, internet-facing, public-facing piece of software, it's got to be so intuitive. You know, how many times have we seen software that you've you developed, you know, to client specifications, you put it in front of a user and they don't know what to do. They stop. They think, well, what's happening here? What, what do I do next? And you think, well, isn't it obvious? I mean, I've, I've done this, you know, a hundred times. I know exactly what to do. And it isn't obvious. And yeah, if you can get that feedback earlier on, you can say, okay, this is not a clear user journey. No one knows what to do when they come to this page. And so you know, they're going to go somewhere else after a few seconds and your products, you know, it's, it's over. Yeah. And, and in terms of how you might avoid this pitfall, uh, for me, there's there's a couple of key things um, that you, you might want to do, whether you're insourcing your tech or outsourcing it. If you've got, a, if you're a stakeholder or you're going to be a user of tech um, that's currently being built and you've not seen a demo after, you know, at least the first few sprints, you've not seen wireframes, then that would definitely set my alarm bells ringing that, you know, from a spec, it's very difficult to build a system that will be perfect for the end users or, or not, maybe not even perfect, but just good enough. And if you've not seen that and you're not seeing that on a continual basis and seeing the improvement and knowing you're getting closer and closer to delivery and go live and you're super confident with what's being built, then that's a massive alarm bell that would be ringing in my head. So if you haven't seen it on a regular basis, the product, you know, I think for me, a, a, good, a good sprint is two weeks. And at the end of a sprint should be a deliverable that you can see, you can be taken through. As, you know, as much as possible and you should be checking in regularly with your product team at that point yeah that's that's so true i think there's a real responsibility for the people who've commissioned software to actually do that due diligence that that uat user acceptance testing because rather than say okay okay the development team's got it under control we understand that we're going to get this in you know, a few months time uh, and you can you know, forget about it. It's tempting to do that. It's really important that you don't, and you, you do take the opportunity to carry out UAT and to check, you know, is this, is what is being created what we actually want here? Even if you think the understanding is there, it's so important to actually, you know, get hold of the software, give it a run for its money, you know, click around and, and put it in front of the, the end users, whoever they are, just to get that, that feedback. It's just critical for, for success. Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, and another one is around, capturing the feedback how would you capture the feedback you know a lot of the time when you're getting a demo from a product team there'll be really good points made by many people involved but it's not captured so it's really critical mm -hmm. that there's someone's job at these meetings at these feedback meetings whoever it is stakeholders customers that they're capturing that uh, that feedback you're you're logging it somewhere it might be kind of a backlog or a jira backlog something like that and you've got some way to 
go over it and analyze it and find the trends because obviously you've got everyone's opinion everyone's got an opinion right but if you start to see patterns in that feedback then it might be a bigger problem that you have to address sooner mm. yeah it's funny isn't it software it takes a lot on a life of its own you put it in front of of users and then suggestions come through and you think well i never thought of that that's a good idea and it starts to kind of you know take on a life of its own and it gets it gets driven by by requirements i mean it is bespoke so it's you know you can you can change the direction of it it's like a living breathing thing that needs to respond you know if it's going to be successful you know respond to that to user input and, and become a really successful product sounds good i guess that's what everyone's looking for it's not you know the successful product's the one that's going to work it might not be the one you spec at the start of the project okay uh, so moving on to pitfall number two so this is one we were kind of categorizing as uh, increasing capabilities. You know, what, do, what do we mean by that? It's, it's quite a kind of vague term. For me, that is you know, take an established business where you might have an internal tech team that builds your kind of software, but you know, quite often in business, you have to pivot, you have to do new projects. There's opportunities you want to get on top of and, and you know, open up new markets. Um, what we've seen quite a lot you know, in, in our careers is that when you've already got your internal team committed to a roadmap for products and then you've got your board or stakeholders are coming to you with new projects that need to be done you know it's a closing window um, in terms of when it has to be delivered and it's all about how do you increase your capabilities quickly to meet business demands you know quite often in business and it it can be looked at as the you know the part of the company that says no all the time you know when really it should be the innovative part of the company that says yes we can do it like we, we can we can build whatever you need to build just need the, the resources to do it and that you know and those can be unlocked through and you know investment in those resources but when we're talking about increasing capabilities you know what do you mean by that it could be it could be rolling out a new product team to build your new product or service or feature set you know how how do you go about that and how do you go about it quickly well i've been on both sides of the fence and you know in-housing uh software development building out teams and outsourcing through clear sky and, and others so yeah, just to try and talk through some of the things you need to take into account when increasing capabilities. Um, so if your business turns around to you and says, we need this project kicked off as soon as possible, then what do you say? Yeah, it's difficult to get it right, isn't it? You bring in more permanent employees, they can get sort of pulled into the mix. And and what happens with you know, embedded teams is, you know, there'll, there'll need to be some sort of bedding in process. Uh, and that's the same for anybody who needs to be, you know, fully aware of systems that are already in place. But then the natural tendency is for those people to become involved in firefighting or tactical pieces of work, you know, things that just matter now, today, or things that just desperately need fixing. Uh, and we've all seen that where you've got people who are brought in specifically for projects and they just hardly get around to spending any effort on those projects. And, and so, you know, you're, you're adding in one, two, three new developers, perhaps, and you just don't see that kind of level of increase in your ability to deliver projects because nobody in those organizations is 100 dedicated to those things you know the level of e even when we've done before we've looked at how people how people's time is used you know it is amazing how inefficient people can be working in companies where lots of meetings take place which aren't necessarily you know 100 targeted at the project they're working on you know things like hr and generic kind of uh, company type things which they might be important for cultural reasons and for team fit and, thing. and those things are important. But if all you want to do is deliver a project, and those can be kind of you know detractors from delivering projects. And so you know sometimes there are better ways of doing that. 
you know, having people kind of separate from those internal teams just to kind of you know to scale up quickly yeah it's a really good point especially around the the amount of time where you know one internal developer is actually not probably one day of development time it's probably about two-thirds of a day of development time for in-house um, yeah and i think it when, we, when you're talking about increasing capabilities something that i see quite often happen is that you know business owners heads it see bringing in a developer to build a product when a developer for me is a software developer that's good at building code to build a product you need like way more than that right you need to have the overheads of managing them, so a good project manager involved. You need to have a good designer involved to get the UI, UX working if it's a front-end product. Um, you need to have a tester to make sure it all works properly. And you see a lot of companies trying to skip that and say, right, we'll just get two or three developers and they'll build something really great and it'll be brilliant for the market when you know, in reality it's, there's a lot more required. So then you're talking about if you're looking to increase capabilities, you need that full set. It's like, okay, I don't need to see in a few days. I need another team and then work out a way to cut off that team from the rest of the work that's going on, whether that be, I think quite successfully, um, Phil, during our time, a previous company where you basically spun out a new office in a different area from the main company, and, and that was spun up to do a, a certain project. Yeah, and all those guys were completely unaware of the the other systems that were in production at the time. And so they just weren't involved. It was like having a kind of team just totally outsourced but but still part of the company it's quite a strange hybrid that, that worked quite well yeah and, and, and when you're looking at um, increasing capabilities I, th I think many companies don't have the ambition of having the biggest product or tech team you know they want the best products and it's how you get to those the fastest because there's the this type the, the amount of investment and time it takes to bring in a new team is massive i mean we, we see that a lot at clear sky where mm -hmm. You know, if, if we've got a lot of demand coming in from clients and new clients coming through the door and looking at the pipeline, we might say, right, well, actually, we need to we need another another kind of squad here of okay, a couple of developers, a tester, a designer, another project manager. But if you're looking at four or five roles to spin up a new team, that can take you know, a long time to get in place. It can take at the short end, like 12 weeks, maybe like between doing the job specs, getting them out to the market, going through various uh, recruitment phases getting them in the door and then something they call time to useful. You know, it's that, it's that gap between someone starts mm -hmm. day one to someone's actually useful in the project can, can be weeks as well. So it's, it's taken a long time at that same time, the business deadline to get things done hasn't moved. So you, yeah. you come back in six months time and say, right, we've now got a team up and running. They've started the work and the business will normally turn around and say, um, we needed it like last month. It's too late. Um, yeah. and it's, it's a difficult balance in that. Yeah. It's funny you were saying as well about, developers who you know often developers who are not just juniors but people who've been around for quite a few years they can be in roles where they're used to picking up jira tickets so they're looking at a board and they might be discussing potential solutions but they're used to picking up tickets and delivering a very specific piece of functionality uh, and that's what they do they work in that kind of quite tightly controlled environment and and that is very different to designing a product or a platform stepping outside of that and looking at something which fits into like a bigger picture, you know, integrating with other systems that could be extensible. You know, there's so many considerations for that. It's so when people do think, okay, we, 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 we understand there's a, a non-technical company, we need to hire some technology in. Let's say we, we try and build a development team. You, know, you, you bring in a developer that is not necessarily going to solve your problem. You know, it's a much bigger broader skill set than that that's going to give you something that's successful to hang your business off and even looking at the other side of it where 
you know, by all means, we're not saying outsourcing is the answer, right? Outsourcing your your next project or project team is a difficult situation as well, where um, it's important to understand going into that that it's the right relationship for the company. It can go wrong in many ways, you know, whether it be yeah. in a cultural reason that they don't want to outsource stuff, and then it'll be difficult to kind of make it work. But also that it does need managed still from an internal point of view, and that you need a stakeholder that's in charge of that project mm-hmm. and is putting internal support for the project because if it doesn't have that then it's, it's almost like a um you know it, it's, it's a difficult thing to deliver a successful product yeah. i mean maybe like a, a whole sort of outsourcing selecting a partner is like a whole new podcast that we might be able to do okay so i i, I figure how, how would you avoid increasing capabilities the problems that that gives you i think there's there's no way to avoid the problems i guess you could manage them you can be mindful of how long it takes to increase capabilities the overheads involved uh, we touched on a few bits there where you know, time to recruit, recruitment costs, reasonable, um, getting up to speed sort of time once you get someone actually through the door. And just looking at the, you know, to increase capabilities, it's not just, it's probably not just one role. You probably need different types of skill set. It's not going to be one person. So the real cost of increasing capabilities can be can be quite high. And it's just making sure your stakeholders understand what's involved there and the timelines involved. Okay, so the third one on the list is what we've called uncontrolled expansion of technology. And guess what I really mean by this is where companies end up with this huge disparate array of different technologies, different platforms, languages, different ways of doing things. And it's almost like someone's come in and just had a go at different things, tried things in a kind of hobbyist approach. Um, And that does tend to be things that happen when you have small development teams who are not managed by any kind of you know CTO role or senior person. There might be experienced developers, but you know, sometimes developers are just really keen on using the next technology. This is something that you know people in tech you know will do in a good way. So they'll look into the what's the new thing, what's the next thing we can look at and learn. And developers are always looking at, at those sort of things. The risk there really is that you end up using so many different platforms many of which might not be particularly mature products that might be sort of cutting edge. And, you know, do you really want to be running your business on something which is cutting edge? Cutting edge basically means that there's there's a lot of risk, that it could be unsupported, there could be lots of bugs in it that are perhaps, you know, not haven't yet come to light. The number of people who know about it, who can operate it and work with it, it's going to be pretty small. So there's a whole bunch of risks around, around doing that. And... Of course, the you know non-technical founders or stakeholders who are commissioning this software, they won't know that. You know, it's quite a difficult thing to mitigate against, you know, without any leadership in place. But I think that's you know the, the, the worst base, the worst things we've seen here are where you really have a, a, a incredible variety of technology and ways of doing things, which it just smacks of being you know, a hobbyist approach um, and, you know, a long way from being professional. Obviously, what you want as a, a business is to hang your business on a solid foundation and be able to hire people who can work with that platform. You know, things are done into using standard tool sets. You know, there's a bunch of different ways of doing everything, but there are some, you know, pretty well-used tool sets around. There are standard ways of solving problems. 
you don't need to go and look for the you know the newest the shiniest the most obscure way of doing something because it's unlikely that you're really going to need it so definitely something to be aware of quite a difficult one to mitigate but you know with proper leadership and plans and um you know technology roadmaps then you can you know try and avoid that as a major pitfall yeah and i, I think it's such a key pitfall that, that gets missed as well and um, when businesses are, are kind of understanding tech it's one that isn't apparent at the outset you know you with a new company or a new a new feature or product line you might bring in you know, a new developer and they'll build your first product in a specific a specific tech and architecture um, and that might work and that may work pretty well for the for the first one then as the team grows you'll build other products and they might decide to build those in different different types of architecture different types of tech then then it happens again and you know you're you're all of a sudden two years down the line you're pouring vast amounts of investment in your tech teams uh, and getting uh, diminishing returns from that because they're having to support multiple different frameworks different types of tech that'll slow them down at every stage even as you're trying to you know, hire more and more staff to keep up with the demand you're going to have to look at your recruitment where you might go to the market and say right okay i, I want a, a, a .NET developer to come in because one of the systems is a, is a .NET framework then they come in and yeah sure they can they can look after that one system but your other five systems are java php and python which they can't touch so then you need to bring developers or outsource for those specific products and then as you, as your company evolves and you get to the point where uh, the, the the tech architecture you have in place is, is preventing your company from getting where it wants to go you know where there needs better onboarding processes or more automation when you then when you eventually get to the point and try and get all these different techs to talk to each other it's an absolute nightmare and, and a lot of the times you're you're then looking at like okay well let's do like a version two of architecture and get a cto in or it leader that really understands what they're doing but you know that's something that could have been handled from the start really by having a bit more governance and control over your roadmap your, your, your tech strategy going forward and i think you can you can see the clear distinction between companies that have got that right at the start and companies which try and overlay that once they're established and it's, and it's very difficult to, to recover from yeah i mean it's a, a real balance i think because if you think of startups you know everything's up for grabs you can make decisions quickly you can try things out and that's you know one of the great things about startups and you know some developers love that and if you compare that to companies organizations that are much more established much larger much more risk averse so for example you know banks you know some e-commerce companies that you know certain e-commerce companies that are fairly risk averse and have a slow rate of change they will have fairly buttoned down technology stacks that have been decided already that is what you use and you know there's no deviation from that and that could be quite stifling for a lot of people because it removes a lot of the creativity and so i think it is definitely um, ideally a sort of middle ground where there's the ability to take on new technology new platforms and try things out but in a kind of um, a way that ensures that you're not hanging your entire business off those things you might try something out and see if it works and great you can adopt it if it doesn't or you're not so sure then hold off and don't roll it out any further but it should be done in a sort of controlled way ideally and i think if those things are kind of reported out to somebody in an organization there's some kind of governance and an and oversight at least you can see what sort of technologies you're using and it doesn't just sort of grow arms and legs with every person who comes in 
and end up in that sort of nightmare scenario that you described where you've got you know different platforms I mean, entirely different platforms and skill sets that are needed for you know different uh, different elements for organizations technology yeah fantastic point so looking back uh, i think it was a really good chat phil um, i think we, we, we covered a few uh, really interesting pitfalls that might not be as apparent you know for people that aren't in, in tech as much as us and really i think we if we just do a kind of quick recap I mean, we talked about feedback loops and what we mean by that is is checking regularly with your products that are getting built actually see demos have input into it record the feedback well get feedback from many parties not just the stakeholder but also the users we talked about the overheads and increasing capabilities whether that be in source or outsource we talked about the you know, time it takes to recruit look after train uh, time to get a team to be useful and then you know the the ways to avoid it is, is, is to is to think of other ways to do it and to keep in mind all those overheads if you're given if you're given estimates and timelines back to your stakeholders and finally we talked about the hobbyist approach that's when you know the tech side of the strategy of your company might just grow arms and legs and uh, and, and get completely out of control in a big spider web of different types of tech which is an absolute nightmare to look after and to improve and it will ultimately hold your business back and um, we also have a familiar failure of the other side of it that you can't stifle innovation by being so set to old tech and this is the way we do it because we do it this way which is never the right way it's always it's always a constant evaluation over how we, how we can improve tech and innovate going forward and it's it's important to kind of keep that overall strategy and roadmap in your head and in your stakeholders heads and explain to them the, the reasons why so uh, from my point of view i hope you i hope you find this pod, podcast episode useful and i hope it's giving you some good tips maybe things you can take away in your own own, own businesses and careers and phil did you have anything to add uh, yeah, I guess I just wanted to say that as we go through our lives in tech, we come across pitfalls all the time. And this is just three of the main ones. And I think they'll be fairly simple for us to come up with some more. So I think watch this space. There'll be uh, more outsourcing tech pitfalls uh, in the sort of podcast series. There's plenty more where that came from. It's, it's not something that's that easy to get right. So that's why it's a complex thing. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I, I think it's, it's, I think you, you never get it always right either. Like Phil and I said, a lot of these issues, we've been there, we've, we've seen it happen, we've seen it going wrong, and that's the easiest way to learn sometimes. Um, so yeah, I, I think just on a part in comments, you know, it's, it's, uh, at the time of recording this is January 2021, and everyone's in lockdown, and I hope everyone is is, is coping well and, and, and getting on with things. Uh, hopefully there'll be better days ahead soon. Yeah, hopefully my kids in the background bouncing around is uh, not put off uh, the sound too badly.